brothers and sisters. You know how at those really small, weird country churches that make you stand up, look around, go find someone that you don't know and say hi? We're doing that. I'm serious. Let's go. Come on. Let's greet one another in the Lord. All right, guys, good job. Everyone, find a seat. All right, as you're finding your seats, let's go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, our last sermon in the book of Philippians. There you go. Thanks, Jonathan. Hey, have you ever wondered why it is that we human beings greet one another? Not just Christians, not just on a Sunday morning like what we just did in church, but why do human beings greet one another at all? It's, it's kind of weird, right? If it doesn't seem weird to you that we do that, you probably just haven't thought about it very much. So think about this. If, if we know each other, why do we feel compelled to acknowledge one another every time we see each other. 
Think about how strange this would be for aliens if they were to kind of land among us and but keep their distance and kind of study our greeting patterns, right? I don't greet you when you come back into the room after being gone for a few minutes, but I do greet you if you come back into the room after being gone for a few hours. Why? Or consider this. I see the other staff members of Sixth Avenue Community Church every day of the week except for Saturday, and even then I see them many Saturdays. But if they walk into the office one morning without greeting me, I will assume that something is wrong. There's a relational rift. Or think about this. My wife is the last person I see before I go to sleep every single night. And we do not leave each other's side unless we go to the bathroom. And yet, when I wake up in the morning, even though we've literally been right next to each other, touching each other all night, I feel compelled to greet her. Good morning, my love. How did you sleep? Then she says, brush your teeth, and we move on, right? Or even think about the, the, the need we, we have to anthropomorphize, which, right, I get credit for that, right, to, to make animals feel human. When we, when we come home, like when my family comes home and we see Daisy the dog, we spend like a solid two minutes like greeting the dog, you know, hi, Daisy. And then, of course, there is the fact that we don't greet everyone the same way. We have different levels of familiarity and fraternity and then we greet one another accordingly depending on the relationship depending on the hierarchy so here's a question should you greet your mother more casually than a friend or vice versa you 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 love your mother more than your friend I think but maybe you see her more often than you see your friend and therefore your greeting is more casual because of that should it be Or let's say you're going to go meet with a dignitary, some foreign dignitary, someone with whom you have no real relationship. You will probably greet that person with more formal respect than you will use when you greet your spouse, the person that you love most in the world. Isn't that weird? And then, of course, there's the fact that you don't really greet strangers. Sometimes you don't greet strangers. When you're young, you don't greet strangers. You mustn't greet strangers. It isn't safe. Don't talk to strangers. Unless you're with your parents, then you must, and you make eye contact, and you be polite, and you introduce yourself. Right? And then there's that awkward walk-by in public spaces, you know, where most of us struggle to know whether or not we should extend a greeting. Should I say hi? Should I smile? Should I wave? I spent a lot of time in elevators with strangers this last week. Do I pull out my phone and pretend to be doing something, or do I say, hi, my name is Sean, right? Most, uh, most white guys have mastered the no-tooth smile head nod when we see someone and we don't really know. We go, right? That's, that's what we do. In the South, we do this really weird thing where we greet strangers that we drive past on the road. Right? You know, I mean, when I, if, you've not, if you're not from the South and you move here, there's just the two finger on the steering wheel, right? I moved here, I was like, who are these people? I don't know them. Why, you know? We also do these really weird physical things when we greet one another. Some cultures bow, other cultures extend a hand to shake, maybe to show that there's at least one hand without a weapon in it. Still, other cultures are big on kissing upon greeting. 
I remember when I got to Peru, I had to learn to kiss the sisters in the church, one kiss on each cheek. And then I also remember having to unlearn that after terrifying a sister in the American church when I came back, when I went in and she was, you know, (laughs) oh no. We also change the pitch and the volume of our voice depending on our audience and circumstance. We smile or we don't smile depending on how we feel when we greet. Speaking of feelings, we tend to have all kinds of strange emotions when greeting people. Sometimes we feel disgust at having to greet someone that we just cannot stand. But polite society says, I have to go up and say hello. Sometimes we are giddy with excitement at greeting someone that we admire. I mean, in the book of Luke, we're told that John the Baptist leaped in Elizabeth's womb at the sound of Mary's greeting. He was excited about getting to meet his cousin Jesus from an entire uterus away. Sometimes we get sweaty and anxious at the thought of meeting someone because we're worried that we'll embarrass ourselves during the greeting. But it gets weirder. Sometimes we as human beings, we, we facilitate greetings between third parties, between other human beings. Hey, you grab someone, let me introduce you to so-and-so. Some people really enjoy, they delight in being the facilitator of third-party greetings because they're so good at it. Think about like the congressman's wife, you know. This is John, he's from Nantucket, he's got three sons, you know, his wife's, right? They, they, they're really good at it. I could keep going, like really, but I think you get the point. My purpose here is not to do an in-depth sociological analysis of greetings, but to simply get you to consider how significant this thing is that we do without even really thinking about it, right? And like most things that we do reflexively, greetings actually really truly do serve a purpose. So what is the purpose of a greeting? A greeting is the first step to connecting with someone relationally. A greeting is the first step to connecting to someone relationally. Or to say it another way, relationships are established and then further reestablished every time a greeting is offered. So, if you care about relationships, if you care about bonds of affection, if you care about community, if you care about family, if you care about love, you will care about greetings, which is why this morning's text is so important. Let's read it together. The final few verses, two verses in particular, in the book of uh, Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, and every single jot and tittle of it is useful for life and godliness, including the parts that we just breeze over and don't pay attention to, like verses, like the last two verses in the letter. Amen? Amen. Let me pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll dive into three points. Lord, help us to hear you, help us to love you, help us to obey you, help us to imitate you all by the power of your spirit working through the word this morning. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. 
Here are your three points. Love, hope, and grace. Longest point is going to be point number one, and they're going to get shorter as we go. Love, hope, and grace. So point number one, love. <clears throat> so the first thing the first thing you should probably see here is that in verse 21, the word greet there in the original Greek, it's in the plural. Okay? So when Paul tells the, when he, when he writes this letter and he says, greet the saints, he's not telling one person to greet the saints. He's telling a group of people to greet another group of people. So who's he talking to? Well, all the way back to chapter one, right? You can just flip back there with me. Flip back to chapter one, right in the very beginning, verses one and two. Flip back there. We read, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Okay, so it seems like Paul probably wants the overseers and the deacons, the elders, the pastors, and the deacons of the church to greet all of the members of the church at Philippi on his behalf. Okay, as, as most of you know, Amber and I were missionaries in Peru for a few years, and every now and then, someone from Peru will message us on Facebook. And after we chat for a bit and catch up, I'll usually end the conversation by saying something like this, send all the brothers there my love, right? Now, why do I do that? I I do that because I have some kind of relationship there that I value, that they value, that we value together. And what I'm saying is, hey, listen, even though we're separated by an entire continent, even though I'm not there with you, I still love you and I still value our relationship. And you make sure you tell the saints that I feel that way. Or whenever I've, I've, I've preached at another church or done an event there, and then later I catch back up with that pastor, you know, after we've, you know, what's going on with you? What's, here's what's going on with me. When we go to get off the phone, I'll say something like, hey, I love you. Great catching up. Send all the saints at Garden City Church my love, right? Tell them that I said hi, right? I'm just doing there what Paul is doing here. In the second half of verse 21, we see Paul not only sending greetings to the church at Philippi, but also facilitating third-party greetings. Look at verse 21 again. He says, the brothers who are with me greet you. So not only does Paul want the whole church to receive his greeting, He also wants them to know that the brothers where he is, incarcerated, send their greetings to them. This is kind of like a mom on the phone with a child that has moved away to another city, right? The mom might say something like this to the child that she's getting off the phone. Honey, I I, I miss you so much. I love you. Send my my greetings to your lovely wife, Tiffany, and the kids. And by the way, your brothers and your sisters here, they also wanted me to tell you hi and they love you, right? Mom's facilitating a third-party greeting. That, that's basically what Paul is doing here between the siblings in God's family. One of the things that blows me away about the ending of this letter is that it really happened. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was thinking about this while we were singing uh, Glorify Thy Name. I was sitting there and I was thinking... Right now, as I sing this, 
I really, really actually do want to glorify your name. I really want my heart song to glorify my God and Father. I glorify you, Father. I glorify you, Son. I glorify you, Holy Spirit. But sometimes that's not true. Sometimes I'm sitting there on a Sunday morning and I'm distracted and my mind's all over the place and I'm thinking about the sermon and I'm just going, glorify thy name, right? It's not, sometimes that's how it is when we read the Bible, right? We're reading the Bible and we're thinking about all these things and sometimes it doesn't actually settle on us that these things really happened. Like, There really was a church at Philippi, and Paul really did preach the gospel to them, and they really were on their way to hell, and then they really did get saved through the preaching of the word. These are real people, real destinies, real eternities. This is not a book full of fairy tales. Paul really was their spiritual father, and he's talking like a dad. Hey, your brother and your sister over here want you to know how much they love you, and they send their greetings. What's incredible is that this bit of providence has extended beyond the church at Philippi 2,000 years all the way across the globe to here, uh, to be here with us in Decatur, Alabama. We really are the church at 6th Avenue Community Church. You really have these elders and these deacons, and we really are going through our own issues. And we really do have siblings all across the globe that we should be sending our greetings to. This is one of the main issues with the the way that ministry is conceived of these days the internet is largely responsible for this we've been trained to think that ministry is something that can exist out there in the ether but it can't true ministry is necessarily relational right a pastor may preach into a camera but he's not ministering he cannot truly minister to people who he doesn't know, if he doesn't know their names, if he doesn't know their faces, he cannot truly minister to them, right? The best ministries are relationally situated. Just look at the language that Paul uses here, right? He refers to the Philippians as saints. And then he says, those who are with me, they are brothers. This is the language of relationship. Just stop and think about the word saint for a minute, okay? What is a saint? A saint is someone who has been made holy, someone who's been called out, someone who has been set apart. What about brother? Brother communicates the idea of family, of shared fatherhood. So what we see when we put these words together is that God doesn't merely call us out of something, the world, the darkness, sin, right? He also calls us into something. He calls us into a family. And that's what we are. If you've been wondering why Russell was talking about family and why we did the weird greeting thing this morning, it's all part of us trying to drive home at this point that we are saints who have been called out of the world and into God's family. We used to be orphans, now we belong to the high king of heaven. And so Paul says, even though you may not know these saints and you may never meet these saints in your lifetime here with me where I'm imprisoned, they are your brothers. You are in the same family. And this is why greeting is so important. If you walk by a stranger on the road, you don't feel bad about not greeting them, right? But if your brother comes in for Thanksgiving dinner, and some of you may actually have this experience this week, your brother's going to blow into Thanksgiving dinner super late, and he may walk right past you without greeting you. If that happens this year, you understand that something is wrong. 
right? There's a relational rift, right? Here's why. Here's the principle. The more intimate the relationship, the more the greeting matters. The more intimate the relationship, the more the greeting matters. I may feel like, man, I wish I was more of a social butterfly and I wish I was better with people and the guy got in the elevator and I probably should have said something to him, but I was super awkward and I didn't. But five minutes from then, you're just not even going to think about it. Why? Because the, the relationship isn't deep. It's not intimate. But, but if a family member walks in on Thanksgiving and you guys don't say anything to each other, that's going to stick with you. Right? Why? Because the relationship is so intimate. You ignore your brother, something's wrong. You come home from work and your wife doesn't greet you? Huh? Marriage counseling. You got to go talk to somebody. Right? That's not, you're gone for a week on a, on, a, on a vacation or a work trip and you come home and, well, you shouldn't be vacationing without your kids. You come home from a, from a, a work trip and, and your kids are sitting on the couch and they don't even acknowledge you when you walk back in after being gone for a week. Something is wrong in the relationship. Why? Because the more intimate the relationship, the more the greeting matters. And so when we greet the saints... Here's what we're doing. We are communicating how much we mean to each other. Which is one of the reasons, even though I am one of the most sarcastic people on this planet known as Earth that you will ever meet, I'm never sarcastic when it comes to greetings. I always want them to be serious, loving, joyful. It's, they're relational, right? You're not some stranger to me in this church. Even if it's the first time meeting you, if you're a Christian, you're not a stranger to me. You're my brother in Christ. You're my sister in Christ. We're part of the same family. And this family matters. We're going to be in heaven together forever. We believe in the same gospel. We worship the same Lord. We're indwelt by the same spirit. We're trying to carry out the same mission. And we have the same father. We are in the deepest possible way bound up with one another. And so the way that we greet one another matters. It says a lot about your relationship. If you have teenagers, you probably know what I'm talking about, right? You pick up your teenager from school. You say, hey, bud, sport, tiger, champ, right? How was your day? And what does your teenager say? Fine, right? Now, as a parent, this just does not track with you. It doesn't track with you. This is your baby boy, right? That's my baby boy, right? Huh? I love you. I've given you everything. I'm going gray. I've sucked my bank account dry, you know. Your mom's been wearing the same pair of shoes for the last 20 years. They talk with every step she takes. You are my heartbeat. You're my life. You're my everything. I'm greeting you. We have a deep relationship. Hi there. How's your day? Fine. Right? The pain of the teenage years. Something is weird in your relationship. Especially when it's contrasted with with being young, right? The, when children are young, they're kind of like dogs. In the Hang tight, right? In the best sense possible, right? Your kids are just excited to see you every time you come back into the room, right? You've been gone for five minutes. You come back, daddy, 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 you know, mommy, mommy, I love you. I'm so glad you're back. You come home from work every day to the sound of all the kids going, dad's home, right? Oh, it's the best sound in the world. So if dads, mom, if, if you come home and your kids are excited to see you, just embrace that, rejoice in it, 
remember that because one day they won't be there. You come home to the teenager, what do you get? Uh, hey, Jimmy, daddy's home. Sup. <laughs> Sup, dad, right? No, no, no. The way that we greet one another matters. It says something about our relationship. One of the commands that's most frequently repeated in the New Testament is to greet one another with a holy kiss. So everyone turn to your neighbor. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, do we believe the Bible or not? Listen, you guys are smart, right? You know just as well as I do that a a kiss in a greeting was a cultural symbol of a transcultural principle, right? It's kind of like head coverings. Head covering was a a cultural way to communicate headship and submission, and different cultures are going to communicate that in different ways. The same thing is true with a kiss. But what is the the transcultural principle being communicated by a kiss and a greeting? I mean, some cultures show affection with kisses, but some don't. When I was in Iraq, the male African uh, hired guards that I worked with, they would hold hands with their male friends as they walked Uh, all across the base, right? Every culture is different. But what should translate across cultures is that when we greet fellow Christians, we do so like we are members of the same family, right? Our greeting communicates something about our relationship. We are fellow saints. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are co-heirs of the eternal glory of God. You should greet your brothers and sisters in Christ that in such a way that it might seem weird to your blood relatives. It, might, it should seem weird to, like, like there, if there's a conflict during this Thanksgiving season, right, and you show deference to the saints and the Lord, that should seem normal to you and weird to your family, right? Listen, we have a, an idolatry of family in the, in the South, in some parts of the church, Now, that's changing. The world is quickly moving away from family. Family doesn't matter. I don't need anyone. I don't need anything. I don't need kids. But there's still a vestige of it that's alive and well in our our world today, and we have to fight it. Your fundamental identity is not that you are the son or daughter of so-and-so, or that you are the mother or father of so-and-so. Your fundamental identity is that you belong to Jesus. Right? Look at that phrase back in verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. That's what makes them a saint. They're not a saint because they went through all the rigmarole that the Catholic Church requires that you receive some artificial designation. They're a saint because they're in Christ. That's how they're set apart from the world. There are only two options. You can be in Christ or you can be in the world. This is what sets them apart, right? So what this means is that Jesus does not give a rip about your last name. He does not care about your shared DNA, right? If you are a Christian, you have taken on the name of Jesus. Yahweh saves. You have taken on the name of Christ. That is first. That doesn't mean that your family doesn't matter at all. Of course it does. And scripture speaks very plainly to the fact that we have responsibility to our blood relatives, particularly our close family. We have a responsibility to them, right? But whatever your last name is, if that's the main modifier in your life if that's the main adjective there's a problem here the main modifier for you as a person is christian 
So very practically, what this means is that when you come into contact with someone who is a part of your heavenly family, you should act like it, right? For me, that usually involves a hug. Some people aren't huggers. Some people aren't, I get it. Some people are side huggers, which is somehow more awkward for me than receiving a holy kiss from a dude. (laughs) I think I would rather do that, me and Grant, cheek to cheek, greeting one another, than a side hug. That's just, I don't get that. But hey, we all come from our own little cultural enclaves. The point is, we should greet one another like we love one another because we belong to one another in Jesus. Amen? Now, I have a couple of subpoints here. Some, some things that I think this principle of greeting should flesh out for us in the life of our church. So let's first start with diversity. Diversity. An old wooden ship. No, that's a movie reference. We live in a day and age that values diversity but doesn't actually know what it is or how to achieve it. Not truly. But I think this aspect of the gospel can help us. In verse 21, Paul says, Greet every saint. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. This is the same language that's used in 3 John 15. Listen. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each one by name. So, remember, a greeting signifies relationship. And in the church, every single person who belongs to Jesus deserves our greeting, our relational recognition. And sometimes that's hard, because although we are a family, we are not perfected. We are still sinners, and there are all kinds of things that we have to deal with, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so maybe even this morning you're sitting here thinking about this exhortation, this clear command from God that I am giving you, thus saith the Lord, you must greet one another in love. And you're like, man, I hear that, but I'm struggling, right? What if they've wronged me? What if I've been wronged by someone in the church? Are they your brother? They deserve your greeting. But what if they're in a different social class? Uh, What if I'm their boss and they're my employee at work and I'm worried about things getting weird? What? That's what you're prioritizing? From heaven, you're going to look back on that and be like, man, that was dumb. Right? If they're your brother, they deserve your recognition. What if we're different racially or culturally or politically? What if we're different sexes? Yes, the way that you greet one another as male and female should change a little bit. You know, men embrace one another differently than a man and a woman embrace one another. But there's still a familiar, uh, a family recognition that must take place. Paul says it like this in Galatians 3. In Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what this means is that you cannot greet the rich but not the poor. And vice versa. You cannot greet the poor but not the rich. You cannot greet the men but not the women, or the women not the men. You cannot greet the educated, but withhold your recognition from the ignorant, right? You cannot just greet those who vote like you do, or who agree with you on your opinion about the spiritual gifts, or who align with you about Reformed theology, or who have the same opinion with you about what's happening in Israel and Palestine right now. 
I'm not saying those things don't matter. Of course they matter. But if this person with whom you have these differences and disagreements is your brother, you owe them your recognition. Greet every saint. Now, am I saying that you have to say hi to every single person in attendance on a Sunday morning? You know I'm not saying that, right? Come on. What I am saying is that you cannot withhold a greeting from anyone who belongs to Jesus. Subpoint number two, unity. What's interesting about the two letters that we have from Paul to the, churches at, to the church at Corinth is that he ends both of them with an exhortation to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, why does he end the letter like that? I think he does so because the church is being torn apart by division. There are sin issues within, there's persecution without, Everyone's struggling to love each other. So Paul comes along and he says, every time you come together, you need to reaffirm your relationship. Every time. You need to show loving affection whenever you see your brother or sister in Christ. Even if you feel like that church member is driving you crazy. Even if you feel like you want to kill them, just run them over in the parking lot. You know, you just wait for the parking lot attendant to just... Go around the corner and boom, you mow them down. Maybe just me, I've had those thoughts. Even if you're like, oh no, I hope they don't go to another church, right? They are your brother in Christ. You are unified with them. This is kind of like when you get into a fight with one of your siblings and your parents make you like hug one another. You ever been there before? Mom and dad make you hug and you're like, oh, I don't want to, right? And then you got to like really do it. You know, so, and then what does mom or dad say? Hey, your brothers or your sisters or your siblings, and whether you realize it right now, you love each other, right? That's what Paul's doing. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You may not realize it right now, but you love one another. There's another way that the theme of greeting comes. Oh, by the way, which is one of the reasons why online church is just straight from hell, right? It's not real. And it's straight from hell, right? Because you can argue with people on the internet and then you never have to see them again. And you can be mean and you can be nasty and you can be rude. And you don't have to offer them any relational recognition whatsoever. But if we have an issue in the church and there's a little tiff, i got to see you on Sunday morning. So we better figure it out. Now let's talk about false teachers. Turn with me to 2 John. 2 John, that little tiny book. Can you call it a book? It's a page all the way towards the back of the New Testament. Second John, there's no chapters, right? It's just verse numbers 10 and 11. <clears throat> John says, speaking about false teachers, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, which is like the true teaching of the gospel, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. That's a relational recognition. Don't give him any meaningful relational recognition for whoever gives him that, whoever greets him, takes part in his wicked works. Are you starting to see how important greetings are now? This is how important they are. If you offer a greeting to the wrong person, you will be guilty. You will have the guilt of a false teacher on your shoulders, right? What John is saying is, like, listen, if someone comes... 
preaching a false gospel and you give them your relational recognition, you're lending them credence. You're lending their ministry some sort of, some sort of validity that it doesn't deserve. I hope you have a category uh, in our like polite southern society of a, a category of people that you should not offer a greeting to. People who profess to be Christians who you should not offer a greeting to. At the top of that list, false teachers, right? I was once in a position where I had to be in close contact for about a week with a false teacher here in Decatur. And he heard that I was a pastor, so he kept trying to be buddy-buddy with me. You know, oh, you're a pastor, I'm a pastor. And finally, after a couple of days, I just had to pull him aside and I had to say, listen, I'm not extending you my greeting on purpose. I didn't use those words, but that's what I told him. I said, listen, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not being friends with you on purpose. I don't think we have a family relationship. I think your ministry is dangerous, and I think you're leading people in this city to hell. And lest I look like the hero of this story, the way that I just communicated that to you was very brave and very staunch and very, you know, in the moment, I was very breathy and very nervous, and I did not want to do that, and I was very fearful of man, and I did not want to offend him, but I had no choice. It was brutal, but it was also necessary. Why? Because Second John tells me that I cannot give a man like this my greeting. I don't want to confuse him, right? If he's going to hell, if he's preaching a false gospel, if he has to give a double account for his ministry, and he's wrong... I don't want to confuse him by making him seem like he's okay. I don't want to confuse the church, right? And I don't want to confuse the watching world, right? I remember I saw that guy. I tried to minister to him, and I saw him out publicly at a restaurant one day after we had been talking, and we'd been, I've been trying to persuade him. And, and then he saw me out at a restaurant, and he came up, and he gave me a big hug, and there was a whole table of our church members sitting there in the restaurant. And I said, God, that can't happen again. And so I called him and I said, hey, I know that our first conversation didn't go well, but we tried to develop a rapport and we've tried to help each other see some things. And you seem like you haven't changed your mind. Is that right? And he said, no, you're right. I haven't changed my mind. And I said, well, I think I need to reiterate what I told you in our first conversation. I think you're a false teacher. And as much as I respect many things about you as a man, as a husband, as a father, I think you're leading people to hell. So when we see each other, each other out in public, it's probably not going to be a hug from now on. Subpoint number four, church discipline. This is the next level down of people that we should not greet. When someone is excommunicated from the church, the church is in love. You have to understand that phrase is the most important phrase. It's the operative phrase, in love, telling the excommunicated member, telling other church members, and we are also telling the watching world, we have no confidence in this person's confession of faith. And so we remove them from membership in the church. Now what this means is that there is fundamentally a shift in your relationship with that person. And if, and if a greeting is a, a recognition of relationship, then that has to change the way you greet them. Right? It has to change the way you greet them. And you're thinking, Sean, well, you're just, that's just you know, implicit reasoning. I don't know. You, are you trying to make us Amish here? I mean, what's, are we supposed to shun people? No, friends, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Paul says that we must not associate 
right, have any meaningful participation with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. He says he's a brother. He's living like he does not belong to the family. That has to change the way you relate to them. They say, hey, man, good to see you. Hey, let's catch up and grab lunch sometime. You say, okay, but we're going to talk about repentance. I love you, and I'm really worried about you. And if you haven't repented of that, I, just so you know, we're not going to just hang out and eat chicken wings and talk about football. And it's so awkward. It's, it's so hard to do that. Those meetings basically never happen, right? Because when your relationship changes, everything else changes, right? Here's how Paul says it to the Thessalonians. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition of the gospel that you have received from us. Or... Here's how Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 18. If he refuses to listen even to the church, so someone bearing the name of brother who won't repent, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Treat him. Treat him a different way. There's a relational shift in the way that you interact with one another. And a pagan and a tax collector, what's going on with that? Well, this was just two different kinds of people who needed to repent. A pagan was someone who had never embraced all the promises of God in Christ, right? And a tax collector is someone who has betrayed God's people. Either way, they both need to repent, and therefore you cannot interact with them as if they have already repented, right? You have to interact with them as someone who needs to be evangelized. And friends, this does not mean that we act like we are better than them. The only reason you have repented is because God has been kind to you. The only reason that you're a Moses and not a Pharaoh is because he has chosen you to be a Moses and not a Pharaoh. And if you think that there's any reason he chose you to be a Moses and not a Pharaoh, like anything good in you, you're crazy. You're spiritually blind. You're delusional. You're puffed up with pride. The only reason you're a Peter and not a Judas is because of God's pure, free, sovereign grace. The only reason you have repented and the only reason you're continuing to repent, even though they're unrepentant, is because of God's pure, free, sovereign grace. So when you interact with them in this new relational manner, you must not be arrogant or proud or haughty. You must be lowly and humble and contrite and heartbroken. You must plead. You must entreat as you call them to repentance. You should be tearful. When I, when I placed that call to that false teacher, I didn't go, and another thing, right? It was, listen, man, I don't have it all figured out, and I think I'm right. I could be wrong, but I, I don't think I am, but I really want you to hear me right now, right? That's the kind of conversations we should be having, and, 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 and it's the same thing. I've, I, we've had a few excommunications at Sixth Avenue, and I've seen some of those people out around town. And they often try to greet me like nothing has changed, right? You know, like in a marriage where you get into a big fight and one person is like the rug sweeper, you know, it's like you wake up in the morning, they're like, so pancakes for breakfast? No, I mean, maybe, yeah, but, <laughs> right, but, but we need to talk about what happened last night. Like, we got to work through this, right? They see me out in public and they go, Sean, good to see you, bud. How's the family? And I just, 
I go, how are you? And boy, is that awkward. They don't want that. Nobody wants that, right? Let's just pretend nothing. Well, love doesn't let us do that. Believe it or not, I could say a lot more about the importance of greetings. But I want to show you two more things before we finish. So let's move on to point two. Point number two, hope. Look at verse 22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Um, You remember that at the beginning of this letter, Paul was trying to encourage the Philippians about his imprisonment. And he said, I want you to know that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard that my imprisonment is for Christ. You remember that? So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, God has used my imprisonment to bring the gospel to the highest, deepest echelons of the Roman Empire. Now, Caesar's household almost certainly doesn't refer to like his nuclear family, you know. It, it's, 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 it's basically a reference to like anyone who's in the, the employ of Caesar, anyone who works for Caesar, anyone who is on Caesar's payroll. That's Caesar's household. So what he's saying is, guys, I want to end this letter on a note of hope. You may be worried that my imprisonment and my almost certain impending death is going to slow down the spread of the gospel. But in actuality, I want you to know that my imprisonment has gotten the gospel to places where it never would have otherwise gotten. Paul says, there are brothers in Caesar's household. You have brothers here. You have sisters here. They're a part of Caesar's house. There are people in Caesar's household who, by the way, must declare that Caesar is Lord. There are people who must say that to get into the job, who now that they're in the job have said, no, 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 I was wrong about that. Christ is Lord. Paul says they send you their greetings. It might, it might help to actually take this and kind of put it into a different, more familiar context for us. So let's do a little thought experiment. Imagine that you are a member of an underground church in North Korea. Okay, obviously super secretive. All right, everyone's trying to stay safe. Now, let's say that the North Korean secret police find out about your pastor, that he's pastoring this underground church. And let's say that they kick in the door one day, they arrest him, right? He's sent to a concentration camp up north for political prisoners and, and, and religious dissidents. But after a time, I don't know, six months, a year, two years, somehow, some way, you get a letter from him. He's managed to smuggle a letter out of the concentration camp, which, by the way, this is not imaginary. Like, again, like this is real. This is real. In North Korea, there really are concentration camps. You're like, concentration concentration camps where Christians are imprisoned, right? Here you are in this nice, warm, comfortable building. God's providence puts you here, but they're there, exposed to the elements, starving to death, fearful for their lives every single day, tortured maligned for Christ. And this pastor is there, and somehow he smuggles a letter out to you, the members of your church. And, and as you read the letter on a Sunday morning, probably tearfully in your congregation, you read something like this. Beloved saints, 
brothers and sisters in Christ, do not worry about me. God has used my arrest and my suffering in ways that you can't even begin to imagine. There are other brothers here with me. They send their greetings, especially those of the household of Kim Jong-un. Can you imagine somebody in Kim Jong-un's cabinet, in his world, in his employ, in the cult of personality, some of them have gotten saved because of your pastor's imprisonment. You would, at that moment, experience what Christians are always experiencing, the height of sadness and the peak of joy, right? You would be so crushed that your pastor is wallowing away in misery, but you would also rejoice that God has used that to take the gospel into places that it would not otherwise have been able to go. How do you get the gospel to administrators of a concentration camp in North Korea? How do you get the gospel to guards of a concentration camp in North Korea? How do you get it there? You send in an operative. You send in an operative. And this kind of thing is happening all over the place. It's happening all throughout history. God used Paul to take the gospel into the upper echelons of the Roman Empire. He used Chuck Colson to get the gospel into the upper echelons of American politics after his arrest in the Watergate scandal and subsequent conversion in prison. God used C.S. Lewis to get the gospel into the highest arenas of academia after a lifetime of atheism, which led to his being surprised by joy. And even today, he's using the persecution of believers all over the world to take the gospel to previously inaccessible places, from the cabinet of Xi Jinping in China to the secret police working for Putin in Russia. This is not a theory. It's a fact. You may not hear about it. May is probably incorrect. You'll probably never hear about it. Maybe one person will escape and tell you, but this is what is happening even now. And this is really one good way to pray for the persecuted church. If you're a visitor at 6th Avenue and you're wondering, like, in that pastoral prayer why we pray so long, it's not because we're trying to be extra holy. We're just trying to pray for all the things that Scripture tells us we should be praying for, one of which is to pray for the persecuted church. So if you're like, man, how can I pray for the persecuted church? Pray for this. Pray that when someone is arrested or kidnapped, right, that God will use that suffering to take the gospel into places it otherwise never would have gone. Think about what's happening in Nigeria, Boko Haram. They are constantly kidnapping young Christian women, selling them into sex slavery, right? How are the members of Boko Haram going to hear the gospel? Are you going to go and take the gospel to the members of Boko Haram? Even if you wanted to, how would you gain access to them? You probably won't, but guess what? God might have saved one of these young women who are going to be kidnapped, and he might take her and put her right there in the den of the lions to preach the gospel and lead one of those men to salvation, beginning a movement that we can't even begin to comprehend, but we will one day in heaven. Point number three. Grace. All right, let's look at the last verse in Philippians, verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So there's something uh, really amazing about Paul's letters. Paul has 13 letters in the New Testament, okay? And all of them begin with the phrase, grace to you. Grace to you. All of them. And they all end with the phrase, grace be 
with you. Grace to you is how they begin. Grace be with you is how they end. Why? I think there's actually a pretty significant reason here. I think what Paul is doing is he's saying that grace is going to come to you as you begin to read scripture, as you begin to open up God's word. And then, and then I think Paul wants you to know that grace will be with you, will leave with you, will stay with you after you have spent time in God's word. Remember that the next time you sit down to read your Bible? I know sometimes it can be so hard. Life is pulling at you from every direction. You're so tired. The kids won't give you like 30 seconds just to go to the bathroom with the door closed in peace, right? You, you struggle reading. The internet has ruined your attention span so that like even when you do open the Bible to read it, you get like 17 verses in and you're like, man, crushed it. 18 verses tomorrow. I'm getting better every day, right? Like this is how we feel sometimes when we come to read the Bible. But Think about the Bible like this. As you go to open this book, the grace of God is going to come to you. And if you have prioritized what really matters most, and you have met with God and engaged with God and communed with God and worshipped God by reading his word, his grace will be with you in a very significant way. You've been built up, you've been strengthened, you've been encouraged, you have replenished. Think about that the next time you walk into a Sunday service. When you walk into this room, you are about to receive grace upon grace. That's not true in every church. You'll walk into some churches where they'll, they'll, they'll preach a false gospel. That's not, that's not grace, that's not a blessing, that's a curse. You should not be at a church like that. If you have family members who are in churches like that, you should take this Thanksgiving to talk to them about how to leave those churches. You may go to some churches that preach the gospel, but they're just, it's like the word of God is just absent, right? They, they believe the same gospel we do, but on a Sunday morning, you would never know it by being there and worshiping with them. The music that they sing is utterly devoid of the gospel. They never read scripture. The sermons are life help lessons, right? You get that from Oprah. Right? You walk into many churches and, and none of this is happening. You won't walk out of that service feeling like, man, grace is with me. And even if you do feel that way, you might just be deceived because you've been emotionally whipped up into a frenzy. But if you walk into a church where they sing the word, where they pray the word, where they read the word, where they celebrate the word, Right? Where they experience the word and the ordinances, I promise you, God promises you, that when you walk out of that Sunday morning service, you will leave with grace. Which is why every Christian has had this experience. The experience of no sleep, crazy kids, stress at work, yada, 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 you don't want to go to church, you get up in the morning, and somehow, some way, you get to church. And when you leave, you're like, man, I'm so glad I came. I'm so strengthened. I feel like God's grace is with me. Why? Because you've received it from him in his word. You're refreshed, renewed, and encouraged. If you've never been to a church with a liturgy like ours, like why we do what we do, the singing, the prayers, and all that stuff, this is why we do that. There's a lot to unpack there, but I just want to draw your attention to two things that we do. We do a call to worship and a benediction. We're just doing what Paul is doing in his letters, right? When we, with a call to worship, we're basically just saying grace is about to come to you 
as you receive from God and his word. And then as we have you stand and receive the benediction before you go out there, we're saying, and you better believe that grace is going to be with you as you go. Now, before we close our time together, I want to ask you if, if you feel like you have received a greeting from the Lord today. Right? Remember, a greeting is just a recognition of relationship. It is possible that you are in this room and you do not have a relationship with God. And as you sit here, you do not feel that he has recognized you, that he has set his heart upon you in love. You feel cold, you feel distant, you feel disconnected. Well, there's a reason for that. It's because you have chosen sin over a relationship with your maker, right? You've chosen the things of this world, the creation, rather than the creator. Your sin has caused a relational rift. And you know how hard it is to greet people when there's a relational rift, right? You're going to feel it at Thanksgiving, that one crazy family member who's been saying stuff about your kids on Facebook, right? That's half joke, half serious, right? That relational rift, all you want in the whole world is just to walk into the room and be like, Jim, how's it going? Big hug. How are the kids? Let's just be normal. But the relational rift has made it so that you can't do that. Well, that's just between two sinners, two human beings. The relational rift that you experience with God because of your sin is infinite. And that you, there's no, you know, you might have a relational rift and you walk into Thanksgiving and you try to find some way to not be awkward and to make it work. And maybe it's clunky and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but you can kind of get through the day. But you cannot make it through life. You cannot make it through eternity with a relational rift with God. And here's the thing. God is standing there ready, willing to receive you back into a relationship with himself. Right? He had a relational rift with his son so that he could bring you back into relationship with himself. This is the promise of the gospel for all who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. On the last day, well, let me say it like this. <clears throat> One day, you're going to close your eyes. One day soon. It may not feel soon, but it's soon. One day, you're going to close your eyes, and you're going to wake up in eternity. And you are going to be face to face with your maker, your God, your judge. And he is going to extend to you some form of greeting. For some of us, he will say, turn away from me, for I never knew you. Depart from me and be cast into the lake of fire. And when he does that, if he does that to you, it is not because he's unkind or mean or unjust. He's giving you what you freely, consistently, constantly asked for in this life. But for those who have said, I want a relationship. I know I screwed it up. I can't fix it on my own. I know that Jesus is the way, so bring me back into relationship with you. If that's what you've done, if that's what you continue to do all the way into the last day, when you wake up and you are face to face with him, the greeting that he will extend to you will be this. Well done. That's your dad. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I want that for you, and he wants that for you. That's probably why you're here today, to hear that, to respond to it, and to receive it. So I pray you will. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this body, this family. There's a room full of saints. Lord, help us to feel what you know to be true from eternity, that we belong together because we are one in Christ Jesus. Now may we sing like that's true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.